Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and this is Return of the Monster Musical. I'm just a mean green mother from outer space, and I'm This is the second half of my conversation with Adam Abraham, who's the author of the new book, Attack of the Monster Musical, A Cultural History of Little Shop of Horrors. If you missed our previous episode, you may want to catch up on that one before listening to this one. Last time, Adam shared the -the behind-the-scenes story of the making of Roger Corman's original low-budget horror movie and how that inspired a young writer and director named Howard Ashman to transform it into a stage musical which quickly became a long-running, off-Broadway sensation. Today, Adam takes us inside the creation of the hit film version of the musical and demonstrates the significant impact the musical has had on our culture, especially how Little Shop kept the flame alive for musical comedy during the 1980s, as well as the tremendous influence that Ashman, Mencken, and Little Shop of Horrors have had on several generations of musical theater writers who have followed in their footsteps. Here we go. So now let's jump to the movie, of course, because of this big hit, and also because David Geffen is involved with it, the idea of making a movie of it comes forward fairly quickly. Yeah, because the film was not until 1986, four years after the show opened in New York, but Ashton was working on it as early as 82, the year in which Little Shop opened in New York. You know, when something is success, Hollywood people are going to be coming to look. Steven Spielberg saw the show. Martin Scorsese was interested. There were different kinds of conversations. Different people were mentioned for Audrey, like Madonna, like Cyndi Lauper, which would take it in interesting directions. But David Geffen was the one who took it most seriously. That's what Ashton felt. Geffen also had the film background. He worked at Warner Brothers, and he was just starting to produce films on his own. He'd made Risky Business, starring Tom Cruise, and he had an overall deal at Warner 
Warner Brothers, who basically they would make anything he wanted because they loved him so much. He was the natural person to help transfer Little Shop from New York into a Hollywood production. But as it progressed, it became a bigger and bigger film. Little Shop was always small. It's in the title. Corman's film made into maybe three, four days, shot for pennies. The original WPA production off-off-Broadway cost $25,000, not very much. The off-Broadway show with the Orpheum, also modest, still a cast of eight or nine. Now suddenly it's a movie for Warner Brothers. Now they think this could be a summer blockbuster. Now they're spending millions and millions of dollars. And the next thing you know, you're on a soundstage in London, the same soundstage you used to shoot James Bond films. And you're making this mega epic film, now directed by Frank Oz, who came up through the Jim Henson organization and worked on many of those projects like Sesame Street, The Muppet Show, and The Dark Crystal. So the thing kind of grew, perhaps out of proportion, not the original proportions that existed. So it's funny to see that progress from the Corman film to the Off-Broadway show to this elaborate production that's now happening in the UK. And you tell us that Ashman and Mencken were only marginally involved in the film by their own choice. That is the thing that is very hard for me to fathom, but this is what I have been told, that they really did not want anything to do with it. Now, to be clear, Ashman wrote the script and he gets sole screenwriting credit, which is a big deal because in Hollywood, there's always 20 writers and they go to the Writers Guild and they fight for credit. He was the one and only writer of the screenplay from beginning to end, even with all the trauma that the film had once it was trying to get into release. But Ashman just had this feeling that film is a filmmaker's medium. It's a director's medium. He didn't want to sit around on set drinking tea and chatting with people and being the third wheel or the fourth or fifth wheel or whatever the image would be. I should also mention that as the film went into production in London, Ashman had his own project to work on, which I guess in his mind was more important. He was going to write his first Broadway musical. Now, here's someone who grew up listening to the cast albums, loving musicals, loving Rodgers and Hammerstein and Gypsy and all that. Now he's going to do a musical with music by Marvin Hamlish, the composer of The Chorus Line. In his mind, I guess that was the most important thing in 1985. He kind of kept his distance in part because he felt that that's their thing. If they need me, they'll call. And because he was focused on his own project. Mencken told me he went to the set once. He flew to London, looked around and left. They essentially chose someone to be their deputy. They chose Robbie Merkin, who was originally the orchestrator of the off-off-Broadway production. He then rose to music director at the Orpheum after the original music director, Bob Billig, went on to other projects. So Robbie became the person who was going to go to London, sit on the set, work with Frank Oz, babysit the production, and look after all the music and make sure that Ashman and Mencken are not unhappy. So that became his task. He went up doing a lot. He did orchestrations. His voice appears throughout the film. So he was given this great opportunity in part because Ashman Mencken did not want to go. It seems strange to us. I would think any one of us given that opportunity would definitely take the flight to London and live in a hotel and hang out on set and just say, hey, I wrote this. But they didn't want to be that person. They also probably didn't want to sit there and not be able to have it be what they wanted it to be without having the power yes. to do it. Ashman directed the show at the WPA, off-Broadway at the Orpheum for the national tour or he knew how the show works. To sit there and watch another director do something different would probably be somewhat painful to him. So maybe he thought it was better to have an ocean of distance between him and whatever Frank Oz wanted to do. Ashman was happy with much of the film, but he somehow sensed it's better to remove himself from the process. It's in their hands now. They've paid me. Let's hope for the best. And I'm going to work on my own musical, which was called Smile. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, tonight is the last hour of my reign, but don't worry, there are 
are 24 of this state's best and brightest high school about to be seniors waiting in the wings. It's a real privilege to introduce them to you. This year's Young American Best Contestants. Hold that pose. Take a picture, a shot that shows. Every one of us wings and pose. Here's a special which I saw, it was a heartbreaking show because mm -hmm. it just didn't quite work, unfortunately, even with that incredible talent that was involved in it. I think unlike Little Shop, they chose a subject that just didn't have any teeth to it. And I don't mean that as a bad pun, but by that point, a Miss America style pageant, we didn't take seriously to begin with. So to satirize it had no real effect. It was, well, this is a stupid thing to begin with. So of course you're going to make fun of it. I mean, adaptation is an interesting topic. Why that? Why choose yeah. that topic? You could say, why do that horrible Roger Corman film with the plant? It's so dumb. You could say, why do this Michael Ritchie film from the 70s with a beauty pageant in California? It's not even Miss America. It's some sub sub, I don't even know what Miss California, I don't know what yeah. Miss Teen. So I guess maybe that project was flawed from the start. It doesn't seem like a great idea. It doesn't seem like what people wanted to watch in 1986, in the same season in which Les Mis opened. I think it was also part of the timing. The film was actually quite engaging and funny. I remember when that came out and seeing it. But by the time you got almost 10 years later, the world had changed and that subject matter no longer seemed bold or engaging or interesting. But the mood of the country changed. There was yeah. some kind of 1970s satire like Network, like The Candidate, like Smile, your film of MASH, that would not have played in the 80s, would not have been successful in the same way, even though just 10 years had passed. So in a way, Little yeah. Shop, as an older project and as a period piece, benefited. It's twice removed now. It's not the 70s, but the 60s. And it was produced on stage as a period piece, whereas Smile, as I recall, was essentially contemporary. So it doesn't have that historic remove where you're looking back, oh, remember what music was like when we were younger. Little Shop benefits from that critical distance. It's the imagined or remembered past. Absolutely. You said that Howard was generally pleased with the film with both Mencken and Ashman. What did they say about the film then? What did they say later? What was their opinion of the movie that got made? I guess ultimately have to be mixed. For them, it was a big opportunity. Again, it's hard to remember because we know who Alan Menken is now. This was Alan Menken's first motion picture. This yeah. was Howard Ashman's first motion picture. They did not write 17 screenplays that did not sell. They did not pitch ideas to various studios and get no response. They wrote a show off off Broadway and it was acquired by Warner Brothers and made. It might not have been made. You know, many things go in development that don't get made. It is such a huge leap that it has to be very exciting. If the film is not everything they hope for, they understand it's a different medium. The musical exists, you can enjoy that, and the film exists. And for many people, the film is how they found Little Shop of Horrors. There are many people who saw the movie, not the stage musical that you saw in New York, but that movie with Steve Martin and Rick Moran 
us on cable, on video. And for many people, when they hear the words Little Shop of Horrors, they mean that. It caught yeah. them at a young age, just as Howard Ashman was caught at a young age by the Little Shop of Horrors. So the movie works to a large extent. I mean, Ashman did like the way a lot of the numbers were staged. He really did admire that opening number with the girls singing as they moved through the streets. Obviously, the famous debated point was the ending of the film, because the ending is not the ending of the stage musical because it did not test well. Hollywood films, as you know, would have a test audience that watches an early version of the film, a recruited audience of whatever the producers imagine would eventually go to the mall and pay to see this movie. And I suppose they had a room full of 13 to 17 year olds who sat watching a movie and each is armed with a little note card in which the viewer can say what works and what doesn't work. And what the audience said does not work is the ending because all the good people die and the villain wins and that they could not take. So the ending, of course, changed and Ashman gave them the ending they wanted, you know, begrudgingly, maybe with clenched teeth, but he thought, if I don't do it, someone else will. And if I do it, at least I can make it the best version of something I don't want rather than some Hollywood hack coming along and making something worse. So he did write every draft and he did give the studio everything they needed right through the reshoots. They did some reshoots in 1986 prior to release with the new ending in which Seymour wins. He kills the plant and Ashman did write and develop that. So he stuck with the project to the end. Again, many writers could have been fired. It's typical of Hollywood. It was his first experience in the movies and I would like to think it informed what he would do when he got to the Disney studio because he certainly seemed to have mastered the art of the motion picture by the time he was working on his next films just a few years later. Absolutely. I was not crazy about the ending. I remember sitting in the theater watching it and thinking, oh, what are they doing? But he did have that plant growing in the grass there at the end, the little baby, Audrey, to at least convey a little bit of the idea of the original. Yes, it's a little cute button. But I would just say to your listeners that if you want to find the original ending, it's quite remarkable and you can find it on YouTube or different Blu-ray and DVD releases. They spent $5 million, this is 1980s dollars, on this very elaborate ending in which Audrey too and some of her other fellow creatures destroy a cityscape with miniatures, all this remarkable special effects work sung to the song, Don't Feed the Plants. So it exists. It's been restored. You can watch it. This is the ending pretty much that the recruited audience saw, did not like, but it is available. Perhaps one of the misfires of that ending is that it actually became sort of horrific. I wonder if there was a way to do that ending that would have been charming and funny and campy that would have fit better with the movie. It's a different medium as well. On the stage, you know it's a puppet. You know it's not a shop. You know it's not real. And at the end, as many people pointed out to me, the actors come out for a bow. So even though they're eaten by a plant, they still come out and take a bow and we know they're okay. We know it's make-believe. We know it's just a story. In the photorealistic medium of film, you see an actual store with props and calendars from 1962 on the wall and there's a realism. And the plant is more realistic. The effects of the plant in the film still look great to this day. It's remarkable what they could accomplish in the moment just before 
CGI computer effects would have come in. They're making, you know, this thing that's 10 tons sitting on a stage and its lips are moving and it's talking to Rick Moranis. It's there. It's still an accomplishment. The other thing that happened right before the curtain call in the original production was those tentacles dropping from the ceiling on you. And I remember the whole audience screaming and then laughing harder than they'd laugh anywhere in the show. And the show was hilariously funny. And that right there is giving you an experience that is both you were scared and it was hilarious at the same time. That is also a salute to the kind of 1960s filmmaking that Roger Corman mastered because some of his competitors would do gimmicks where you go to see some horror movie and you know a person dressed up as a monster would come out or they'd put some electric buzzer in the seats and do odorama. So there are all those gimmicks done in the 60s to get people to leave their home, not watch television, but go watch some horror film at the local cinema. So the way Ashwin's effect at the end is in keeping with that sensorama 1960s experience and something that the film in 1986 lacked it did not reach out and touch you as they used to say <laughs> so yeah that was definitely a thrill for the original audience as many people remember that detail the tendrils fall and literally grab you as you're watching the end of the show subsequent to the events you have just witnessed unsuspecting jerks from Maine to California made the acquaintance of a new breed of Don't go away, there's more Broadway Nation right after this quick break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. 
That's code BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50, as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So the release of the movie actually reinvigorates the box office for Little Shop of Horrors, which is still running at the Orpheum Theater. It's always interesting when a stage musical can survive the movie version because there's a tricky challenge there. You know, many times the producer want to hold off the film version with the idea that you kill the Golden Goose. You don't want that film to be made. We're making money in New York. We're on the road. We have first national tour. Don't do the film yet because then it's on cable. Then it's done. So there is that resistance. And a few years passed, as we said. But yeah. As far as I can see, there was an increased box office in 1986-87. Because even if people didn't see the movie, they just knew about it. Now the movie is advertised. It's a major motion picture from Warner Brothers. It's advertised coast to coast. It's on television. It's in the newspapers. So there was a boost in sales. By a year later, it was pretty much done. But there was a little bit of a boost just because people who either saw the film or simply heard about the film wanted to see the original. So yeah, the off-Broadway producers did get a benefit of that. But then the show, like all shows, closes. But after an incredibly long run, I don't know where it stands in the history of off-Broadway musicals, but it's certainly one of the longest-running off-Broadway shows. Not as long as The Fantastics. Not as long as The Fantastics. Of course, that's at the top. And I'm not sure about Three Penny Opera. That ran a long time as Mm -hmm. well. But I'll look that up and see where it stands in that pantheon. Well, I did look it up, and Little Shop's original off-Broadway run of 2,269 performances was indeed longer than a number of blockbuster off-Broadway hits, including You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris, Forever Plaid, and it even edged out Godspell by a few performances. However, there were a number of musicals that ran even longer, including The Three Penny Opera, the original edition of Forbidden Broadway, Nonsense, I Love You, You're Perfect, Now Change, and of course, The Fantastics, which ran for 42 years. Little Shop claimed to be the highest grossing at the time, just because the ticket price had gone up. So that was an accomplishment. I mean, it made millions and millions of dollars. In addition to Off-Broadway, it had multiple productions at the same time around the world. I talk about this in the book because, as you know, there are a number of books on the making of an individual musical. It's kind of its own genre now. This year alone, there's one on Greece, there's one on Pippin, there may be others. But one thing that I definitely want wanted to do for Little Shop was look what happens after opening night. Because a lot of making of the musical stories tend to close on opening night. And I think that's a misfortune because that's really when it begins. The writing and creation are, of course, interesting, but then it begins. So you have cast replacements, you have understudies, you may have a national tour, you may have a film version, you may have London and so on. So I spent a lot of time trying to learn about these different productions. And Little Shop in the 80s went to Japan, South Africa, went to most of Scandinavia, played in all sorts of different places. And it seemed to work most everywhere, even in translation. So Ashwin, of course, is a little less involved in these subsequent productions. He directed New York, 
Los Angeles, London, and the national tour. That takes him up to 1984. By that point, he's pretty much done, and he hands it over to his successors, like his longtime assistant director, Connie Grappo, and the original stage manager, Paul Mills Holmes. They directed some of the international productions thereafter, and others took on the task as well. But yeah, the show played everywhere. I learned about some different versions. I emphasize some more than others. Ashton was especially interested in the production in Paris because he was a Francophile. He studied French in high school with a teacher who was much beloved. And he did seem to be more involved in that one. And in his papers in Washington, D.C., I found multiple versions of the French translation because Ashton could actually read it. And there's handwritten notes and corrections. So it seemed like he was interacting with that one quite a bit. And there was an original translator who was essentially rejected. And it seems that he was not meeting Ashwin's standards for what a little shop in French would look like. A new collaborator, a new translator was brought on. He, in fact, traveled to New York City to see the show at the Orpheum and to kind of get it into his bloodstream before working on and putting on the show in Paris. So Ashwin was a bit more involved in that one, but the show just plays. And then it goes into stock and amateur, and then it's high school and college and university. And I learned this year that Little Shop is still in the top 10 high school productions. This includes plays and musicals, public domain or otherwise, with William Shakespeare and everyone else. So it's still in the top 10 all these years later, which is just amazing. And it's running again in New York. It is. I had the good fortune to see it three times. I have not seen that production yet. What was your reaction to seeing it? Tell us a little bit about the current production. Well, this is pre-pandemic. If you can remember the old days in 2019, I saw Little Shop and was getting remounted off Broadway. It may be worth remembering that there was a Broadway revival in 2003, directed by the same Jerry Zaks, who directed Nathan Lane and Faith Prince in Guys and Dolls. And this version for many did not seem to work. It didn't seem like the right house was in the Virginia. And for some, it felt like just a mismatch of the show, the material and the theater. But uh, there are many good performances. The cast was terrific, but I remember seeing that production as well and thinking, well, Howard was right. This shouldn't have ever gone to Broadway. So when the topic came up again, this time the Ashman estate said, we're doing it off-Broadway. This is where it belongs. This is how it always said. He was right. We were wrong. Now we're going to see it off-Broadway. And they found an economic way to do that at the West Side Theater, which is actually a really good venue for it. Not exactly the Orphan because it's nicer, but it's 270-some seats. Every seat feels pretty close and involved. You feel like the plant is right there with you. So it has a lot of advantages. $5,000 worth of African violence. $2,000 worth of baby blue eyes. The pink... And I interviewed a number of people who worked on that, including the director Michael Mayer and the original Seymour and Audrey, Jonathan Groff and Tammy Blanchard. And then I got to see them do the show. I got those bridal wreaths to Elizabeth Taylor, sweet Mr. Mushnick, she's real pretty. Goodbye, sir, come again. Seymour, can you help me with these phones? Skid Row's favorite florist, can you hold, please? Mushnick and son, Skid Row's favorite florists, can you hold, please? Now you were saying, flowers for a prom corsage. Flowers for an entourage. Flowers to the funeral home. Leaving from St. Andrew's Roman Catholic Church at 9th and Vine. $40 hold the line. First thing in the morning. Fine. They'll be there in the morning. Can you hold the Rose Bowl? See more the Rose Bowl. You know that big inflated estimate we wrote for the Can't keep the tournament waiting. Mushnick and Son, please hold. Can you hold? It's just as 
the plant foretold It's business like who'd have ever guessed That was me, that was me On Channel 3 So why am I feeling so depressed? I get two tickets to the game! And it's really good, in part because what Michael Mayer said, what he told me was that he wanted to get into Howard's mindset and he wanted to not completely reproduce, but reimagine the kind of production that it would have been, the kind of experience you would have had at the Orpheum, but now in the 21st century. So it really does feel like it's honoring the original production without being a carbon copy. He reinvents certain things, but it's a lot of fun. And it's just amazing. I sat there, obviously I know the show better than some and there's children sitting there who are just enjoying this thing and just delighted by it. I remember the first time I saw the new production, Audrey sings about her big enormous 12-inch screen in somewhere in the screen. There was a little girl sitting in front of me who says to her mom, that's not big. Years later, this thing just works. And you have to think, there are many artworks from 1982, which would not play today. They would require some framing, some context, some rewrites, something or other. Many classic Broadway musicals get revived, but somehow it's always a new book. We have to hire a new book writer and redo this and that. Somehow Little Shop did not need any of those improvements. It just works. The show that's playing in New York right now is what Ashman and Mencken wrote. And it just kind of plays. And there are people who were obviously not born then who are watching it and just enjoying it. When you mentioned children in the audience, and that's also one of the transformations of the show. What started off as an off-off-Broadway, off-Broadway, late-night sort of hip experience for young adults, has become a family show in a way I think that might have surprised the original creators and cast of the show. Yeah, it was not the intent. I mean, the one thing that Ashwin consciously did was he avoided curse words. In some earlier drafts, they do say some of the words that George Carlin said you're not allowed to say. And Ashwin avoided that, but I don't know if it was thinking about children in the audience so much as just if there are better words, why not use them? But otherwise, there was no idea that this is a kids or family show. It did not occur to them. The reviewers, even in 1982, started to mention this. And I think you can see it in the New York Times around Christmas of 82. It's mentioned as a possible family show to take your kids to, again, in the year in which the show opened. So I was trying to understand how this happened. Albert Poland, the general manager, also talked about how it went from being a cult show to a family show. He described this transformation. And it doesn't make total sense because nothing changed. The story, script, songs are the same. They did not change a word or note to make it kid-friendly or family-friendly. So I kind of thought through what happened. And I do think that in this period, as I argue in the book, that children's entertainment actually grew in sophistication, became a little bit more raw, a little bit more edgy, a little bit more modern in some ways. So that by the time the show was running successfully in New York, we sort of caught up to it in terms of what a family audience could enjoy. It's like a Shakespeare play. Any audience can enjoy that in different ways. You can enjoy it for the poetry. You can enjoy it for the sword play. You can enjoy it for its insight into human nature. Little Shop plays on different levels as well. There's a level in which it just works for kids. I mean, I guess it is a puppet show, so we shouldn't be surprised. But it was not meant for children. And lo and behold, it worked really, really well as a family show. The one principal creator we haven't talked about yet is the creator of that puppet. Hmm. Talk a little bit about Marty Robinson. Well, one of the thrills of this process of writing with a book was that 
that I got to meet, many who worked on the show, including Marty Robinson, who created and performed the Audrey Two Puppets at the WPA, at the Orpheum, and then in Los Angeles. I got to go to his workshop where he makes his monsters. And he actually still has an original Audrey Two from the WPA. There was one that was not quite big enough for the Orpheum, so he kept that one. And I think physical contact with the original puppet. So that was a nice piece of the past. Marty has been on Sesame Street since 1981. He is larger than life. He played the character of Mr. Snuffleupagus and many favorite characters, and it was really a thrill to meet him. And he really described the process in some detail, and I was very happy to hear that. And as you may know, he also dated Ellen Green for roughly eight, nine years. So they fell in love on Little Shop pretty much from the start, and they were together for most of the 1980s. So he had a lot of insight, a lot of you know, fond memories of their time together as well. So the fact that it's a giant Muppet is in the DNA of Marty Robinson. He came from that Jim Henson world. He was a puppeteer. I mean, that was Ashman's idea. We're going to make it a puppet because it's not obvious what you could do. It was Sarah Ashman's husband suggested making the plant invisible, like the character in Harvey. And no one sees it, but we all just talk to acknowledge it. I mean, it's a very economical solution, but that's not what Ashman had in mind. He had the idea that he was going to have a gigantic gimmick. That was his word, right in the middle of the stage that no one could miss. And it was going to be a singing and dancing puppet. So Marty Robinson was trained as a puppet here, found his creative expression through that. You know, he wanted to be an actor but felt that he was limited. He could only be cast as the six-foot-tall, affable white boy, I think was his phrase. As a puppeteer, he could do any character from a four-inch creature to a large-in-life monster. So he really fell for puppetry. He did audition for Sesame Street in 1981 when they needed someone to replace Jerry Nelson, the performer who was doing Mr. Snuffleupagus, because Jerry Nelson had injured himself climbing into this gigantic creature, whatever Snuffleupagus is. Marty was already doing Sesame Street. That was his day job. I think it was in a hiatus in shooting that he had the time to create the puppets. But once Little Shop was running, he basically shot Sesame Street by day. He would go to the theater and then embody the these four different Audrey II puppets. And for pretty much the second act, he's just stuck inside this plant. He doesn't get to go off stage. He doesn't get water. He doesn't get a bathroom break. He's in this plant for the entire second act. So at the end of the night, he's just drained. He's had these long days. And he told me after a performance of Little Shop, after performing also for Sesame Street, he would go to the local bar and order two beers. He needed two entire beers just to get his body functioning again. So that's a detail not in the book, but I thought that was rather charming. Well, one detail you did include, which I thought was fascinating, is it could have been Julie Taymor instead of Marty Robinson creating the original puppets for Little Shop. Yes, there were a number of meetings in New York in Ashman's calendar for 82. I saw he wrote down Julie Taymor. He actually misspelled her name. She was not as famous then, but I'm pretty sure it's the same Julie Taymor. And Marty recalls that she recommended him. She didn't want to do it for whatever reason, but she had worked with Marty Robinson on something called the Haggadah, which played at the public. I think it was done twice. So they knew each other. So when she met with Ashman, it seems, she recommended Marty Robinson. She also knew that this was perfect for Marty's taste because he loves monsters. And as coincidence would have it, he also grew up on the Roger Corman film, The Little Shop of Horrors from 1960. So when Ashman first met Marty Robinson at the old WPA theater, they found that they both had a childhood obsession, as Marty called it, the same project. So I think it was meant to be. Let's talk about the legacy of Little Shop. This is a big hit show that has had a big impact. And as you detail, there were many incarnations. What are the various versions of Little Shop that either happened or almost happened? You know, we live in a world in which IP, intellectual property, is valued. So something is a hit, some 
nothing is success in one medium, why not try another? So Roger Corman technically retained the rights to the original 1960 film, even though, as I mentioned, he never actually copyrighted it, but nothing will stop Roger Corman. So he thought, now this thing's running, now this thing's a hit, I'm going to make some money off of it. So he negotiated quite a few good deals for himself, one of which he negotiated a deal with Warner Brothers, since in theory, Warner Brothers was incorporating his rights. He got himself a good deal based on that, and he thought, I can exploit this title once again, because I own, I suppose he owned Little Shop of Horrors, the core concept. So he tried to make a television series in the early 90s, and it was going to be broadcast by USA Network, which was just getting into scripted programming, and like many producing entities, looking for a known quantity. So I got to meet the two writers who were developing this through many, many, many drafts. Somehow that version never got on the air, but I was happy that they saved all their drafts and notes and stuff. So I just make a note, save everything. That's my <laughs> advice to everyone out there. Save all your papers, you never know. There was a cartoon version of Little Shop that went on the air roughly at the same time in 1991. To be clear, this is not based on the musical. This is based on the Corman property. It was called Little Shop. It technically has nothing to do with the Ashton Menken musical, although the cartoon is kind of sort of musical because the plant sings, which is to say raps, because it's the 1980s, so the plant does a couple of raps. All right, it's time for me to bust a rhyme, so sit back and chill for a while. I'm coming at you like tune style, so get Ready for a funny bone overload at the little shop. Yeah, boy, in full effect. Yo, the little shop posse's gaining respect. So break out before I put you in check. Now, when you come to the shop, what you're getting, what you see, so just be careful. And this played on Fox Network. It only lasted for one season, but Corman was involved in that. He's just, you know, selling this work any which way he can. And the original screenwriter, Charles Griffith, also thought, why can't I get into the act? And he wrote a would-be sequel called Son of the Little Shop of Horrors, also unrealized, unproduced. But in theory, he would have written and directed that for Corman. One of the intriguing things about Son of the Little Shop of Horrors, besides the fact that magically no one is dead, all the characters survive, Seymour and Audrey are well and surviving into the future so they can be in a sequel. But the curious thing is that in the Charles Griffith version, Audrey is married to Mr. Mushnick, not with Seymour. So it's a different reading of the piece. And there was a graphic novel as well. Is that... There was, yeah. There were a couple things that were done to tie into the film. So that's more closely associated to the Warner Brothers film. There were a couple of book tie-ins. I guess there were three that I found. One was a graphic novel by DC, the makers of Superman and other robust heroes. And it's great to kind of read the graphic novel version of Little Shop because the first thing they do is they take out all the songs. Now, I don't know if it's because they didn't want to deal with Ashton and Menken's rights, or they simply thought that you can't have a musical on the page, it wouldn't work. And then they redraw all the characters in sort of muscular DC style. So as I think I say in the book, the Seymour looks like a Clark Kent who never becomes Superman. But they're also careful not to draw the actors in the movie. So you're not looking at caricatures of Steve Martin and Ellen Green, even though the comic book, the graphic novel, was a movie tie-in, I think because there'd be some rights issues. As you said in the book, some of the lyrics are sort of morphed into dialogue in the graphic novel. Yeah, it's a paraphrase. I think it's for the reasons I mentioned. But yeah, and they use thought bubbles 
novels, one of my favorites is when you first meet Orrin Scrivello, he's riding on his motorcycle, just as Steve Martin does in the film, but rather than sing, they're thought bubbles. And his thought bubbles are prose paraphrase of Ashman's lyrics. Sometimes he's using the exact words, but without the rhyme scheme, without the meter. So he's kind of reminiscing about his childhood when he used to torture animals. And it's interesting, that's how he found his career today. So yeah, the graphic novel. It's a curious amalgam of kind of the musical without the songs, kind of the movie, but not looking like the stars. And one fascinating little tidbit in the graphic novel for the real aficionado of aficionado, there's one song that was cut from the musical called Audrey Two, a very cheerful, charming Asher Menken song, never produced on the stage, never appearing in any version, which somehow wound up in the graphic novel. So it's this weird artifact. The writers must have an earlier draft of the screenplay. So for a moment, this cut song was going to appear in the motion picture, the 86 film. Didn't make it to the film, but somehow made it to the graphic novel. So that is for your ultimate trivia night of Little Shop of Horrors. You can use that one. Fantastic. Another legacy is this new genre of off-Broadway musical that Little Shop seems to spawn. You can see the temptation. Why not take something terrible and make it into a hit musical? What could be better? And the counterintuitive is often quite intuitive. Tim Rice talks about this. He says, often the best idea for a musical is the worst. And the worst idea is the best. I mean, Cats is probably not a very good idea. Vita doesn't sound very promising. And yet they work. If you can take a bad or unpolished movie like Little Shop of Horrors, why not something else? So I observed in the 90s, there was this attempt to kind of reconstruct the Little Shop DNA, either by finding a B-movie or a B-movie scenario or using the setting of the 50s and 60s. Fat Boy is probably one of the stronger examples of this. I'm not saying they ripped off Little Shop, but it's kind of in the same milieu. And Nancy Noggle Gibbs, who was a company manager of Little Shop, did work on Bat Boy. I believe she's one of the producers. And she told me that she was trying to produce something in the Little Shop model, at least an economic model, of something quirky that could run off Broadway. And Bat Boy is actually quite fun. There are others that I never got to see, like Zombie Prom. You could also think of Reefer Madness, which was a hit in LA, played New York became a TV movie. Again, you find a movie that's terrible. You add singing, you add a talented cast, and you sort of see it with our own snarky late 20th, early 21st century point of view, and it's kind of refreshed in a way. I think there's a bunch where they're not Little Shop per se. They seem to be operating under a similar Premise. Return to the Forbidden Planet is one of the ones that you mm-hmm. mentioned. I never saw it. I read it, but it seemed to be hit in London. I'm not sure if it was as successful here, but it does seem to be putting together again Little Shop of Horrors. It's a classical narrative. It's kind of stolen from a B movie. There was a movie with a similar title made by MGM. It's essentially The Tempest in Space, which is a good yeah. idea. But this writer chose to use songs of the 50s and 60s, like Great Balls of Fire. Now we call it Jukebox Musical. And they're telling the story of the Tempest in a kind of B-movie science fiction scenario. So that one was a genuine hit in London, as I understand. I never got to see it. I've seen productions of it. I agree with you completely. They are clearly inspired by the success of Little Shop, and they're looking to replicate the same formula. They had limited success in doing it. It was actually harder Mm -hmm. to do than I think anybody thought, even when they got fairly close like Bat Boy. Mm -hmm. It didn't have all of the same... It didn't have Howard Ashman writing it. It's probably the real issue in Alan Menken. But you also mentioned Bucket of Blood, which has been adapted to the stage. Again, why not go back to Roger Corman and Charles Griffith? They wrote other films. So you can see the temptation. 
but of course you're going to get compared to Little Shop yeah. every time you do it. It's a positive and a negative in a way. If you can pull it off, it would be a great positive, but it's always going to be, well, it wasn't quite as good as Little Shop. Well, as I read in the book, success spawns imitation. When there's a winning formula, others will try to reproduce it. If a cop buddy movie works, other people are going to make cop buddy movies and it will keep happening and keep happening. You can try different pairs. One could be an alien from outer space, whatever you want to be, and there'll be new permutations of the same thing. This podcast is all about connecting the dots throughout the history of the Broadway musical. What do you see the impact of Little Shop on the Broadway musical being? Well, it's not just because I'm talking to you, but I think there's a connection to Hairspray. And I make this connection. It's not completely obvious, but Howard Ashman, like John Waters, came from Baltimore. Somehow Baltimore gives us these iconoclasts like H.L. Mencken. And they both were looking at their pasts, both Little Shop and Hairspare kind of memory stories to some extent. John Waters is remembering Baltimore in the early 60s. Ashman was remembering the experience of watching the movie of Little Shop on television in the 60s. And both are set in roughly the same period. Whereas I think it's rather precise in Hairspray, it's 1962. The Little Shop period is a little less defined. It seems to be the late 50s, early 60s, although Ashton told people privately that it is 1962. It's curious that he thought in his own mind, although it's not published, it's the same time frame. And both are kind of an outsider art. They're both looking at people who should not be a star of a musical, who perhaps should not sing and dance, whether it's Tracy Turnblad or Seymour Krelborn, who seem to be kind of misfit and outsiders who, through some mechanism, find love and achieve, to some extent, their dreams. I would also add that Ashwin really admired the films of John Waters. They did eventually meet, and John Waters went to see Little Shop when it premiered in Baltimore in 1984, and Ashwin just adored Waters' films. So there's some connection there about Baltimore, about looking back, about this period in one's life when you're a little bit younger and impressionable and finding a way to revoice that in the 1980s because Hairspray was also a movie in the 80s before it became the success that you know about in New York. So that's one. I mean, you could do others, but since we're talking, I did want to mention Hairspray because it's also, as you know, an anniversary year. Absolutely. And I can speak, I think, for Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman that when Little Shop of Horrors was happening, they were around in New York getting started. So clearly the impact of that show had to affect them. And then Mark Shaman probably second to or maybe ahead of Alan Menken, is one of the most talented people at creating pastiche, at being able to write a song in the style of the 50s and the 60s, really of any era, and making it stand on its own. It doesn't feel like an imitation. And that's one of the great things about the score of Little Shop and the score of Hairspray, is those songs have their own legitimacy in addition to being pastiches that really replicate and convey the era that the show is set in. It can simultaneously convince you that you're hearing 1962 or the early 60s and be new and fresh, like a song from today that you want to hear over and over again. And Mencken and Shaman both can do this. It, it is a remarkable talent. And they both somehow found a way to channel the music of that period to write new scores that work as a Broadway score that tells stories and yet convince you that they're grounded in the sound and the harmonies of that time. The other thing I would say about Little Shop and its legacy is that it kept musical comedy alive during a period where people would say to you, oh, the musical comedy is dead. There's never going to be another musical comedy that isn't ironic or that isn't just purely comic, but that we can't take musical comedy seriously anymore. This is, of course, during that era of the British mega musical, 10 years without a musical comedy on Broadway. It's quite remarkable. 
It was definitely a fallow period. Yeah, except for Little Shop is keeping it alive during that period and sort of demonstrating how you could do it. Now, every song in Little Shop is funny. Even the ballads are funny. People sometimes would say, well, sure, Little Shop, but you don't take any of that seriously. It's all for laughs. So that's the only way you could do it. And of course, then we get to that period with the producers and Hairspray. And to me, the most important one actually is the full Monty because it really takes the characters seriously in a Mm. musical comedy for the first time in 10 years. And all of a sudden, everything's a musical comedy again. And the musical comedy has been reborn. But I think Little Shop had still kept the flame alive and demonstrated to those people who would write those new shows how to do it. Yeah, there's kind of a dark age or interregnum in the 80s. And it's worth noting that the American musical seemed kind of dead. It was the British musical that was really dominating the Broadway stage, whether through Bublé Schoenberg or Andrew Lloyd Webber. And the musical comedy was dead, as you say. But also, I would add in, the animated musical was kind of dead. So all of these things which had thrived in earlier generation and earlier times were kind of really looking finished. And done. And here's the Orpheum Theater, a little beacon, a little light showing that you can still do musical comedy. You can still write songs that tell a story, that move an audience that are funny. As you say, the songs are genuinely funny and it kind of keeps the light in the window so that one can come in the 90s and thereafter and say, oh yeah, a musical can be funny. There can be an American musical. There can be a musical based on different things because there are also the revivals. I think that's a missing piece in the 1990s. The revivals like Crazy For You and Guys and Dolls, which I mentioned, also showing how to do an American musical again, not the British way. And then that leads to the period you're talking about in the very beginning of this century with Fulmonti producers. Yeah, the revival of Chicago is another one that relights that. Yeah. Demonstrates again what it could be and what could happen. I just see the idea of just holding a torch, holding a candle, which is really, it seems, what Ashman and Mencken did and what Little Shop did in that period. And you're right. They then continue to demonstrate that through the movies, through the Disney movies of how Mm -hmm. to write a musical comedy in a very traditional way that still felt modern and up to date. Somehow the Disney animators just forgot how to do that. And Howard Ashman came and literally told them how to tell a story with songs. I guess because enough years had passed that people had lost the knowledge of that. Knowledge that any person in America would have known better in the 30s and 40s and 50s when operetta and musical comedy were still a thing. Somehow that knowledge got lost. So Ashman role at Disney was to some extent to teach them how to make a musical and how to write a story that can be told through song and how to use songs to advance the story and to deepen and enrich the story. In my opinion, Ashman was demonstrating that to them for the first time, because if you actually go back and look at most of the classic Disney movies, which are delightful, they have songs in them, but they're not really using those songs to tell the story. They're sort of in a more what I call the Silver Age now. They're sort of songs that amplify the story, but don't really tell it. And Ashman is actually bringing the musical play Rodgers and Hammerstein game book to Disney for the first time, other than, I would say, the other example of when they did do that very successfully was Mary Poppins, which was, of Mm. course, not animated. But that has a fully integrated Mm. musical theater score. I would say this. The Disney movies that Ashman cited the most were Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Pinocchio. And those are the two where the songs actually tell the story more than some of the later films. They actually feel more like bona fide musicals. Snow White definitely has that kind of integration. Some people argue that Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs even influenced the 1940s musical 
because, of course, that came before Oklahoma. There's a scene between Snow White and the Prince with speech and song that seems to be pointing towards some of the stuff that Rodgers and Hammerstein would do. So it's interesting that he saw those films more so than maybe the ones from the 50s and 60s where they had songs for production value or entertainment value or charm. There was something in those first two Disney animated features that feels more like a genuine musical. I think that's a great observation. Part of the reason we had this dark age, as you said, or this dark decade is because of the same reason we don't have Howard Ashman. Talk a little bit about the impact of his death. Let me start by telling you what a producer, Tom Curtis, told me. He moved to New York in the 80s and he knew at a young age that he was gay and he wanted to live in New York City and he wanted to go to NYU and he wanted to work in law. And he was basically working with AIDS patients at the very beginning of this crisis, trying to help them any way he can. Eventually, he gave free legal aid. At the same time, he went down to the Orpheum and he saw a little shop of horrors and it just lifted him from his everyday experience from this crisis, from this disease that was devouring people around him. So it's interesting, as he told me in his mind, these two things were kind of connected in his own experience in New York in the early 80s. I find that to be a curious connection. Many years later, as you know, he got to be one of the producers of the now off-Broadway revival, which began in 2019 and is still playing. Ashwin died in 1991. There was a memorial. It happened at the Orpheum Theater, where the show had played for many, many years. They sang songs and told stories, and I mentioned the cut song, We'll Have Tomorrow. That was sung at that event by Lee Wilcoff and Ellen Green, the original Seymour and Audrey. I mean, I can't, I can't even imagine. It's a beautiful song, one of Mencken's very best melodies, and that is saying something. Is that a song we can hear? Yes, there is a really nice demo recording of Ashley Mencken. It's on the cast album from 2003 as a bonus track. Don't you be frightened. Don't be afraid. I'll get us out of this mess that I made. Don't ask questions tonight. It's touching.
go, Audrey, please. You're sure you're all right? Don't worry about me. Don't worry about anything, okay? Okay. So that was sung on that occasion. Other songs by Ashwin, other stories were told. You know, it's a healing for those who survive. He was just a part of so many people's lives. So many people in theater were just denied what he might have done on stage, on screen. I have no idea what. Who knows? The possibilities are truly endless of what he could have done at 40 years old. Don't you be frightened. Don't be afraid. We see tomorrow, we've got it made. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon, with no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Thank you, Adam, so much for joining us on Broadway Nation. This has been terrific. Where can people find you if they want to hear more about what you're up to next? You can find me on Instagram. So go to abraham.author, abraham.author. I've got many, many, many pieces that cannot make it into the book. A book is finite. The publisher allowed me only 12 images. So I'm going to post some costume renderings, which did not make into the book, some lyrics, some sketches, some photographs, all sorts of fun stuff. So check that out if you need 
need more Little Shop, that's a good place to go. Fantastic. And I also will invite you to join us in our Broadway Nation Facebook group, where we have 2,000 very enthusiastic theater fans. And maybe you can share some of those things there as well. I will. Thank you. Thanks, David. Seymour was in a funk. He was number zero. Who the funk? He'd become a hero, just a punk. He was a forgotten so and so. Then one day, crash kerplunk. Don't it go to show you never know? Sit down, Seymour. Now we're gonna sing for you. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me. David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. I just cut my hand and in a snap, something out of Edgar Allan Poe has happened. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.